Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is your favourite science program. Well, it's it's my favourite program. I can't speak for you, but um, I like it. Uh, how about you, Stu? I like it too. Yeah, excellent. It's it's yes, a, that it's, is it's the favourite science show of mine that I make. Fantastic. That yeah. is um, a bit of a spoiler there. That is Stu who is with us today. How are you, Stu? I'm um, not too bad. And Stu is here to present some of his favourite science, I believe. Uh, Stu, what what unbelievable science have you got for us? Well, I don't know if it's unbelievable, but uh, I'm looking into possibly everyone's favourite vegetable, the spud. I think it's 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 probably not the most you know the most commonly homegrown vegetable, but you know potatoes are pretty important as a food around the world and tasty and delicious as well yeah i'm a like i am a huge fan of potatoes i've i i don't think i've ever talked about that on the program but i certainly make no secret of it in my everyday life um yeah big fan of potatoes <laughs> well I'm, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the things that humans are not the only things that like eating potatoes there is all sorts of pests and diseases that affect potatoes but probably one of the most famous diseases of potatoes caused the Irish potato famine in the 1860s, which famously changed things for people in Ireland and caused massive waves of immigration and all sorts of other things. But the the disease that caused it is actually still a thing. It's still out there. And one of the things that potato breeders have been trying to do is find um, ways to avoid that happening again. And, and there's various ways to do that, but I'm going to be talking about a new... Um, not a breakthrough, but a new strategy, I suppose, for defeating the, the potato blight, which could lend itself to solving a lot of problems around the world as well. I'm trying to think of like a, a not a tuba joke, but um, <laughs> it could be actually it's a tumor. Is it a tuba tumor? Well, no, it sort of just rots it away from the inside. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, and at the end of that, it's not a tuba it's there we go. A, it's just a mushy mess, really. Okay, and what else have we got on the show? Oh, we have Claire. Um, Claire is uh, will be joining us. She is interviewing Ellen Mather from Flinders University from South Australia um, about uh, new fossil discoveries regarding birds in prehistoric Australia, and not just any birds, but I don't know exciting birds. What, what, what would you consider an exciting bird, Stu? Uh, look, uh, you know, any any of the raptors are probably exciting birds. I think you've got you've got that right. Yes, it is. Um, it is a raptor. It's a it's a bird of prey. It is, in fact, an eagle. Is one of the most recent discoveries. But yeah, uh, Ellen Mather is going to talk to us about yeah the eagles and vultures and those sort of things that used to fly around in in the skies of ancient Australia. And I, I'm assuming they're not out there still, but. Yeah, you never know. There could be some interesting, interesting discoveries there. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's a big, it's a big sky out there. 
It is a big sky and it goes up a long way. All right. So we have quite a bit of science on with the show. Now, you've probably heard of the Irish potato famine. Uh, oh, to be sure. It's, this is this is a historical outbreak of a disease in Ireland that wiped out most of their potato crops. It caused mass starvation, particularly among subsistence farmers. Now, of course, there is a lot more to the story. Um, the potatoes were relied on so much because... Uh, a lot of the production of Ireland was being sent to England as taxes, um, and you know there was political reasons this happened. It wasn't just, or it was a big accident and all the potatoes died. The reason they were relying on the potatoes was had other reasons behind it. Yeah. Okay, now, see, I mean, you, you say potato. I mean, I say potato, but um, let's not call it off just yet. But um, surely, though, potatoes would not have been like a traditional food i mean they would have only arrived fairly recently in ireland oh look i mean south american weren't they or something like that yeah that's right and and you know the potatoes potatoes got to europe uh pretty quickly after europeans got to america it was one of the first things that were brought back and widely um cultivated because of the ease of cultivation they're very easy to grow you get they're very productive you get a lot of food from a little amount of space and and you know they they caught on pretty quickly so by the 1860s which is when the famine happened they were pretty widely grown um throughout europe as well um but obviously the famine had long-lasting effects on the irish people caused waves of migration out of ireland millions of people displaced um you know it was it was a big natural disaster i suppose um so the the famine was the result of a disease of potatoes known as late blight, which is caused by a microorganism called Phytophthora infestans. Now, that microorganism infects the leaves of the plant, but it goes, it works its way through the plant system and makes its way to the storage tubers, which is the potatoes that we actually eat. So the systemic nature of the disease means that you can sort of harvest tubers that seem like they're healthy and they will rot away in storage because oh. the water mould continues to feed on the starch. You know, this, the, the tubers themselves are starch storage organs of the potato plant from which it regrows, you know, the following year, unless in this case it gets eaten away by the, by the, uh, by the Phytophthora infestans. So is it kind of a fungus then? What is it? It's it's a water mold. So it's not it's not a it's not a true fungus. It's it's a fungus like organism, but it moves through wet soils and um, it produces zoospores, which can swim from one place to another and stuff. So it's not it's not a true fungus, but it is fungus like. Um, it's a protist, I think. Yeah, the fact that the fact that it can continue to grow even after you've harvested it kills the plant it it kills the tubers and you end up with nothing left now the strain that caused the irish famine is probably extinct they did do some sequencing of stored samples from the irish potato famine and worked out that the strain that probably caused that famine is probably not around anymore but the disease is still around because there's a whole lot of different strains and varieties of potatoes that are resistant to late blight uh, as well as modern fungicides have reduced losses from the disease 
but about 1.3 billion people rely on potatoes as a staple food, which means that's the food they get the bulk of their daily calorie intake from. That's a lot of people. And it is one of the most widely grown agricultural crops around the world. But unlike the other staples, which is the other big three are rice, wheat, and maize, or corn, but we call it maize to distinguish it, potatoes are propagated vegetatively rather than from seeds. So all of those other grains are grown from seeds, so you get some genetic variation. But with potatoes, you propagate vegetatively, which means the plants are clones of the parent plant. So they're genetically identical. And this is part of the reason the Irish potato famine was so severe, because most people were growing the same variety of potato, which were genetically identical, and they were equally susceptible to infection. Now, see, I've often wondered this, because you can go to like a nursery and get seed potatoes, but is that like a just a, a rot? Like, is there anything different between the ones that they sell there? Or can you just get your favourite potato that you, from the, the shop and plant that in the ground? If you look at the big, you know, you get the big bags of potatoes from the shops. If you read, most of those have written on them, not for planting, because seed potatoes are supposed to be virus tested and certified as seed potatoes to, to stop the spread of disease. Because they are vegetatively propagated, you can to transfer disease that way. So you're not supposed to plant potatoes that you buy from the shops to eat. You're supposed to plant certified, what they call seed potatoes, but they're actually tubers, obviously. They're not seeds. So yeah, there is actually a difference in that. And you ask, but you know, there are, there are rules, there are strict rules about what you can plant and what you can't plant. There's actually, in Victoria, there is a potato research station which has an exclusion zone around it where you can't bring potatoes into this area. Wow. Because, because it may infect the potatoes in the research station. So it is, you know, it's, it's, it's serious business. So, yeah, because of that genetical, genetic, you know, identicalness, identicalness, um, the, the, there is no genetic difference between a potato. If you grow it from a tuber, it's genetically identical to the plant that you took it from. So you can end up with fields of genetically identical plants. So that's a real problem for, for pests and diseases in a lot of ways. So potato breeders have been breeding more resistant varieties of potatoes through traditional breeding methods. By growing potatoes from seed, they do actually produce seeds. They flower and produce these little fruits. And you can get the seeds out of the fruit and you get a, a new variety of potato by growing those seeds. And they are genetically different because of the recombination of genes through the pollination and all of that stuff. But so they're basically just try new new seedlings, seeing which ones are resistant, if any of them are more resistant. So potatoes originated, as you said earlier, in the Americas, and so did the late blight of potatoes. The Phytophthora comes from the Americas as well. And the researchers realised that natural resistance has to be present in wild potato plants because otherwise they would have been wiped out by the potato blight a long time ago. But there must be some natural resistance in those wild potato plants that allow them to cope with it. So the genes responsible for resistance in wild potatoes have actually been identified and characterized, and recently they have inserted those genes into modern potato varieties. Oh, nice. So some Kenyan scientists who work for the Global Biotech Potato Partnership, which involves the Kenya Agricultural Livestock Research Organization, 
the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, Michigan State University, and the International Potato Center. Now, there's some somewhere I'd like to visit, the International Potato Center. But they recently concluded trials of these new biotech potatoes with these resistance genes in them and found that they can deliver yields of over 300% more than other potato varieties grown in similar conditions. So they, they did all these trials and they found that, you know, the, the non-biotech potatoes were getting losses of 80 to 100%. So they were basically just getting wiped out by late blight. The new potatoes getting 300% more. Obviously, they survived and they were getting more productive uh, as a result. Um, so in Kenya and Nigeria, potatoes are widely grown, but they can suffer losses of up to 70% or more as a result of late blight. And even when they use fungicides, they get lower levels of loss. So they get sort of, you know, 20 to 30%, even when they're using fungicides to prevent this, um, this late blight. Fungicide sprays are relatively expensive, um, which is an issue for a lot of farmers in Africa. Uh, and they have high, what they call off-target effects, which means that they'll kill things that you're not actually trying to control. They're killing all sorts of other fungus. And with fungicides, they are generally quite toxic for other organisms as well, including animals and insects and fish and things like that, because right, fungi, yeah. are, fungi are actually more closely related to animals than they are to, to plants. So plants can deal with the fungicides, but animals tend to be affected by them pretty severely. So the advantage of using GM technology to insert the specific resistance genes into existing potato varieties is that it has no impact on their other characteristics. You can have a potato that you know grows the shape and the color and the size and all of that that you want, uh, and all you've done is added this resistance gene to the potato blight. So you could use, you know, breeding programs using wild potatoes and, and, and sort of crossbreed them using traditional methods. And it, but it could take years to breed new, useful, commercially viable, edible varieties of potato using those old-fashioned methods. Uh, because wild potatoes basically have little tiny tubers. They're not really worth eating. You could eat them. You could live off them. You can survive on them. But they're not actually going to be a commercially viable crop because they're Tiny, so the farmers aren't really all that interested in little tiny potatoes. Um, so it's possible to insert the blight-resistant genes into any existing potato variety, continue marketing them as normal. They've already you know, got the markets in place. And you don't need to apply the fungicide to the crops. So you're saving money and actually getting higher yields just by using these, these modified potatoes. So the higher yields and low production costs will make a huge difference for African potato farmers and other farmers as well. Uh, and we'll also get improved environmental outcomes because you've got a reduction in the amount of fungicide that's required to grow the potatoes in all sorts of conditions where you might not be able to grow them. And, and if you've got already infested land that's had problems with late blight, you can actually use these new varieties to grow in those areas and not um, not have the problems that you would otherwise have to have and not use a huge amount of fungicide to, to get them to grow as well. So, yeah, I think um, in, in, in the long run, I think 
potato farmers everywhere will find these new biotech potatoes very appealing. I was going to do that joke, Stu, but um, <laughs> look, you, you beat me to it. But look, it's quite interesting they, they were able to mash them together like that. Glad they didn't make a hash of it. But uh, yeah, look, thank you for the excellent potato chat. Yeah, all eyes on potato research. When you think of prehistoric Australia, you might think about giant wombats like the Diprotodon or other megafauna. But what ruled the skies at this time in our Australian prehistory? Well, now new fossil discoveries have uncovered a bit more of this mystery. And to speak to us this week, we have on the show Ellen Mather, an adjunct associate lecturer in paleontology at Flinders University. Ellen, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with your new discovery. Um, tell us about the fossils you've found. So these fossils come from the Narracourt Caves and a site called Green Waterhole Cave, which is near Mount Gambier. They come from two different um, species of um, birds of prey that were alive during the Pleistocene. So one of them is one that was already known to us called Cryptogyps lassitosis. So this is the Australian vulture. It's currently the only vulture known from Australia. Wow. And so the fossils come from Green Waterhole Cave, and these represent the wing bones of this species, which we previously didn't have before. And so these bones have shown us that this species was actually quite, well, for lack of a better word, primitive for a vulture. So it didn't have certain adaptations for lightening its wings like we see in living vultures. So it lacked uh, what we call pneumatic fossae, which are basically um, these regions of holes in the bone that help lighten the load. So cryptogyps didn't have this, so this might indicate it was a less efficient soarer compared to living vultures. So the vulture was sort of on the heavier side? Maybe relatively speaking. So actually compared to most vultures alive today, cryptogyps would have been on the smaller side. So it was around maybe a bit smaller than a wedge-tailed eagle, but most vultures actually grow very large. So some species can be over 10 kilograms in weight, whereas I don't think cryptogyps would have been going much past six. So, But it's probably relative for its body size, it would have been quite heavy. And do we know much more about this vulture in terms of, you know, what it ate, where it lived? Um, you know, it's the only vulture in Australia. Did it look and act like other vultures that we know around the world? What bones we have, some of them are quite similar to living vultures, so particularly in the legs. And that's important because that shows it wasn't using its feet for hunting and killing prey. We can generally guess that it was probably feeding off of the carcasses of megafauna. And finally, we do have a general idea of its distribution. So we have fossils from Western Australia, from the Nullarbor Plains. We have you know, the South Australian sites, so um, from up north in the Warbit near the Warburton River, as well as um, the Green Waterhole Cave near Mount Gambier. And then we have fossils from the Wellington Caves in New South Wales. So that tells us, you know, at the very least, it was widespread across the southern half of Australia. You mentioned that there were two different species that you found. So one's a vulture. Tell us about the other fossils. So the second species um, is from 
the Narracourt Caves, and it's the fossils of a large eagle. So we've named this species Dinatoatus pachyosteus, so that literally translates to thick-boned, powerful eagle. And as right. its name suggests, it had quite a robust skeleton. So it would have been similar in size to a wedgetail, but yeah, the skeleton at its build was much heavier. So it would have been quite you know a strong predator. So probably hunting relatively large prey for its body size. And when you say large prey, and uh, you, you know, thinking about it in the landscape of um, Australian megafauna like Diprotodon, yeah, paint us a picture of what it would have been taking down and eating and sort of like what Australia back then with these incredible raptors in the sky would have looked like. It was likely hunting um, medium to large birds and marsupials. So like, I doubt it would have been like, you know, attacking adult diprotodon because that's <laughs> yeah. just difference. That's a bit too much for most birds of prey, I think. But it certainly would have been attacking perhaps some certain species of kangaroos. So actually wedge-tailed eagles today are known to attack kangaroos on occasion. And so this eagle probably would have been hunting them too. And it may have also been targeting, while it wasn't attacking adult megafauna, it probably was very likely be, um, attacking the juveniles. So perhaps young joeys or fledglings of the giant marsupials and birds and, you know, possibly even attacking animals that were sick or perhaps on the verge of death too. You found both of these fossils in, is it Narracourt, did you say? Narracourt caves? Yeah. So, well, yeah. I think cryptogyps we haven't confirmed from Narracourt, but since it was at Mount Gambier, it's probably likely it was over there too. And were you part of the field work or the, the field researchers that went out and found these these fossils? Tell us about your role in the research. So in these cases, I wasn't involved because a lot of these fossils were actually first excavated up to several decades ago. So that was long before I came onto the scene. So I did most of my work using um, these fossils which were kept in collections. So that so using collections was a significant part of my research. I actually did get involved in one field trip, which was up to Mare's Cave, where for one of my papers. So that's that was actually for another species, which was the relative of Dinatoatus pachyosteus, and that was Dinatoatus gaffi, which was the giant Australian eagle, so twice the size of a wedge tail. So wow. I was um in charge of the field trip where we found more bones from its skeleton. Oh, amazing. This giant eagle, was that, did did that sort of live in the same time as these these new fossil, um, these new species that have been found? Uh, uh, yeah, so it seems that um, during the Pleistocene, you know, these, all these species were living together. So we had, you know, the giant eagle, we had um, that, so that Dinatolatus gaffi, we had Dinatoatus pachyosteus, cryptogyps lacitosis, and the modern wedge-tailed eagle all living within the same landscape. So that's, you know, a very dense number of large eagles compared to what we have in inland Australia today when it's only just the wedge-tailed eagle, really. That's fascinating. And so from a, I guess, a theorising why, um, you know, back then we had this sort of large number of eagles and we don't now, why did they go extinct? So the fact that they, you know, survived till the late Pleistocene and then died out, we think it strongly seems to indicate that they seem to have gone extinct alongside the megafauna. So that could indicate that perhaps they were specialized to adapt to hunt or 
scavenger of species that were alive during this time. And you know, once they went extinct, they really struggled to survive. Um, it could be that perhaps there were some habitat changes going on too that might have affected their ability to survive. And then, of course, you know, with all the with the megafaunal extinction going on, there would have been increased competition between um, these multiple species that wouldn't have been present beforehand. So that would have also put on the pressure. I mean, I for one um, would love to see a an eagle twice the size of a wedgetail eagle um, soaring above us, but I have to say it would be a pretty terrifying prospect. Yes, the large birds of prey can be very intimidating. Um, I once had the experience of seeing um, a condor in South America up close and in a rescue centre, actually. So um, they had it fly down to us and, you know, everyone just sort of took a step back. <laughs> it's a primordial fear, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> um, and so with these new discoveries, what does this tell us about the evolution of um, of eagles and raptors in Australia in general? Is it sort of these new insights feeding mm. into um, what we understand about raptor evolution? Uh, yeah, so um, we can actually learn several things from this. So in the case of cryptogyps lacitosis, um, this is important because it's evidence that there were once vultures in Australia. So um, part of a, a big mystery for a long time was why doesn't Australia have vultures? Because they're present on every other continent except Antarctica. And, you know, at least in Antarctica, there's a very good reason for them not to be there. <laughs> and so this shows that we did have vultures. We just happened to be pretty much the only continent where they've died out completely, you know, which is probably not the best title to have, to be honest, but, you know, it's it solves a mystery one way or another. And so um, otherwise, you know, the existence of our large eagles from the Pleistocene also shows that there was what we call endemic evolution going on in, in Australia. So these two eagles belong to the same genus. And so that means they must have had a common ancestor, likely present in Australia a long time ago. So speciation tends to take you know, quite a long time, sometimes up to millions of years. So that means that this lineage must have been present in Australia for a very long time and that these species weren't just um, descendants of a very more recent arrival in the landscape. The fact that we don't have vultures now does that mean that our wedgetail eagle has sort of taken up the role that a vulture would have in another part of the world? Uh, yeah, so this is um, so the wedgetail has likely undergone a phenomenon of what we call ecological um, release. So it's actually able to exploit more niches than it could previously while these species were alive. And in fact, probably part of its um, success and its survival through the Pleistocene is due to it being what we call a generalist. So it's not too picky about what it does or what it eats or even where it lives because it's so widespread across Australia. So, yeah, it is essentially filtering in the niche that a vulture would have by scavenging carcasses. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science this week, um, sharing your incredible discoveries and um, really painting a picture of what guess Australian prehistoric skies used to look like and why they are what they're like right now. So thank you again.
That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us. Get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.